0: this week that have garnered our attention and taken our eyes off of you. That this morning we would we would just hear from you and we would just see you, Father. We repent of all um, that we have put in your place. We ask you to smash our idols uh, until all we have left is you, because there's no good apart from you, Father. We love you, we need you. Again, we ask that you would speak to us this morning. It's in your son's name that we pray all of these things. Amen. All right, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one around you, underneath a seat. Hebrews chapter 13. It's good to be back with you guys. Missed you last week. Uh, It's good. Can I just say it's good to be back with adults? Uh, We can say that. I feel like I've done way too much speaking to youth for the past month or so. And so I was at a, a middle school cheat last weekend, which was fun. Um, it's just different. It's just different. And so middle schoolers worship by spinning around um, and dancing and, and and being kind of silly, and, and that's appropriate for them because that's what they do when they're happy, and that's what they do when they're they're worshiping. Um, but it's it's good to use big boy words and big girl ideas and, and things. Of that nature. And so I'm glad to be back. Hebrews 13. We have two weeks left in the book of Hebrews. So we've been almost for an entire year walking through the book of Hebrews it's because we're very much convinced here that we don't need cute stories and we don't need um, ideas and we don't need motivation, anything like that. We need the scriptures, particularly in a culture, a Christian culture, where we are biblically illiterate. And we just don't know the scriptures. So the best use of our time together um, is always to be in the Scriptures as much as possible together. So we've been walking through the book of Hebrews. Uh, we'll finish it up next week. We'll be done completely with the book of Hebrews. It's been a, a long time. It's been a good ride, but we'll be out. Uh, we'll start up on November 6th, a new series called The Messy Kingdom. Uh, what we're going to do is look at the parables that Jesus told, some of his favorite stories that he told over and over again, and hopefully discover in them um, the same truth that he Uh, was giving to his disciples during his lifetime about life and about God and about the kingdom that God is setting up. And then when we hit 2012 in January, we're going to hit the book of Acts, okay? And so that will be our next kind of book study as we walk through the book of Acts. But Hebrews 13, we still have some stuff to do as we close out. Um, We're going to pick up in verse 1, but before we get started, I want to direct your attention to verse 28, which we hit, again, two weeks ago. Um, Verse 28 says this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, in chapter 13, the book of Hebrews is going to switch, and we're going to get these short, repeated bursts of commands, okay? So do this, do this, do this. And what he's doing is he's just reminding his congregation of things that they already should know. So he's not teaching here which is why it's so short and one after the other. So we have some background work to do because he expects his congregation to already know these things and to, in some sense, already be practicing these things. So he's just going to remind them and all of them build off this idea right here that you and I offer to God acceptable worship because of who he is and what he's done for us. If we were to recap the book of Hebrews, it's about one thing and one thing primarily, which is that you and I would run the race well, that we would finish, that we would endure Hebrews, remember, he says, "Run well, strengthen your knees, finish the race, finish out. Don't lose faith. Don't get distracted along the way." And he's given us these warnings all along through the book of Hebrews. This is what would happen if you did lose faith. This is what would happen if you fall off the mountain. But he says, "But this is not you and I. You and I, with the spirit inside of us, we run, we finish the race." And so Hebrews has gone on and on about the new covenant that you and I are a part of. That The sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. The priesthood that he holds over us. And now he's saying because of all these things, there's a way that you and I live that's an act of worship. The worst thing we've ever done to this word worship is we've made it about songs or about music. um, Or about kind of this emotional feeling or attitude that we have towards God at certain times depending on how well life's going for us. When the scriptures worship is a a, a lifestyle, it's you live. There's a certain way that you breathe and exist and talk and think and act with other people that declares both to God and to the world that he is worthy, that he is the king of everything, that he and he alone is worth obeying and following and pursuing. So Paul would make the same shift in his book we call the letter to the Romans. In chapter 12, he's built up this picture of who Jesus is, what he's done for us, chapters 1 through 11. And then in chapter 12, we switch it, and he goes, Therefore, dear brothers, let us offer to God our entire bodies as a living sacrifice, a spiritual act of worship, that when we don't conform to the world but are transformed by our minds being renewed by who Christ is, our lives become worship. They are lifted up to God as this act of saying, you are worthy. And so in chapter 13, he's going to start to spell out for us, what does acceptable worship look like? And it's not at all clear that you and I have acceptable worship. If, if, if I mean, if we're just being honest. You have the, the book of Amos, a uh, minor prophet. He says this in chapter 5, Amos 5. Um, he's speaking to Israel, the northern kingdom at the time, God's chosen people. And he tells them that God hates it when they get together to worship. He says, I, I hate your feast. I, I despise it. He, he's speaking on behalf of God. He says, I, I, I hate what you're doing there. And in fact, stop singing. Stop singing songs. He says, it makes me angry. And so I've always thought, kind of tongue in cheek, that maybe some of the most worshipful worship services in America would be a worship band getting up on the stage, starting a song, and then saying, shut up, and sitting down. <laughs> Because the scripture's showing, hey, worship is your life. Worship is the decisions you make. It's not doing whatever you want and then singing songs to convince yourself that you're okay. It's a life surrendered to God. Worshiping him. Acceptable worship. What is it? Well, he's going to list off. Boom, 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 boom. This is what life looks like in the kingdom of God. Acceptable worship. Pleasing to the Father. And he's going to hit this morning in our text. We've got six verses. Three big ones. Okay, so we'll read it through. I'm picking up in verse one. Hebrews 13, verse 1. Read along with me. He says this, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free, verse 5, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? I want you to look back at verse 6 here, right before we get started, we'll jump back to verse 1 and go through it. But in verse 6, we have a quote here from Psalm 118, and he quotes us three stanzas, or three lines. And in these three lines, I think we have an example of what acceptable worship looks like. So it starts, notice, the first line is, the Lord is my helper. This is a theological truth. This is the truth about who God is. The Lord is my helper. So there's a promise. There's a truth. And then the second stanza, I will not fear. There's a response. This is who God is. Here's my response. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. And then I love this. If you look at the third stanza here, what can man do for me? There's a boast. There's a boldness. There's this this almost swagger. There's this this confidence. There's this, what what are you going to do to me? This is truth and it creates a response in us that creates a bold lifestyle in the context in the world that we live in. This is the pattern of acceptable worship. You look at who God is and then that creates a lifestyle that creates an action in you. So we'll see there's three things he hits here. He hits love, relationships, he hits sex, and he hits money. Um, I'm very aware that my title of today's sermon is dependent on these commas uh, to make sense it's love sex and money not love sex and money um, does that make sense you need the commas or you might get the wrong impression um, from today's sermon um, but he hits these kind of three things he'll give us for each a few commands it's very symmetrical the way he does this so He'll have four commands about love one reason two commands about sex one reason and two commands about money one reason Okay, and we'll hit these as we go along. Remember, he's reminding his congregation this is what acceptable worship looks like. So he starts with love, verse 1, that brotherly love, continue, do not neglect, to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. He says that you and I, as Christians, we are to love, and he lists off three categories here for us. The first is the faith family. Let brotherly love continue. Let the love of the brothers and the sisters of Christ. This is the primary metaphor, the primary way of seeing the Christian community in the New Testament. We're a family unit. He says, let that continue. Let let you love those who are in your faith family. Which assumes that you and I are going to be committed to a faith family. That we're going to have a local group of people that we're pursuing Christ with. He says, let them um, continue to love each other. And then he says... Love the strangers. We might call them the outsiders. Love the faith family. Love those outside the faith family, those, the strangers. He says, be hospitable. Open up your house, your home, your life to them. And then those who are in prison, he says here, and those who are mistreated, those who are suffering. This command to love is very dependent on Jesus' teachings. Um, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you're going through the Gospels, this is something Jesus hits over and over and over again. In John 13... Um, verse 34, 35, he says, this is how the whole world will know that you're my disciples. You'll love each other. And, and that'll be your badge. That'll be the mark that people see and go, what is happening there? They're loving each other. They're loving the world around them. They'll be known by love. And it's at this point that we needed to find love, okay? Because we love cheeseburgers and we love God and we love our spouses and we love sneakers and we love phones and we love technology and all these things. And so we need to, to, to define what does it mean to love? Because why would, follow me on this question. Why would Jesus be crucified if that was his message? Who hears that and goes, no, let's just be jerks to each other. I mean, even the most hardened person, Jesus himself would say this, at least loves the people who are nice to him. I mean, everybody loves someone who loves you. Yeah, if someone compliments you all the time, you're going to compliment them. If they give you stuff, you're going to be willing to give them stuff. Everybody loves the people who love them back. What was so offensive about this was that Jesus' love broke through almost every social boundary. He said, don't, don't just love the people who love you. What, what reward is there for that? Even even pagan, even the, a mass murderer does that. <coughs> even, even they'll love someone who, who loves them and takes care of them. He says, but what if you loved an enemy? What if you loved someone you didn't know and had no reason to love? What if you loved someone who maybe had a reason to be suffering. So what if you, you loved through all these different social boundaries? Um, we'll put down a, a working definition for love. It's not perfect by any means, um, but we'll say to love is to recklessly seek the good of somebody else. To love has this redemptive characteristic about it, where I'm in a relationship with somebody else, and I'm going to seek to bring life into that relationship, into that person. I'm going to seek their good Good, not just in how we define it, but good defined by the scriptures. Life in Christ, finding joy and life and wholeness and peace in the God of the universe. Love is to recklessly seek their good, to sacrifice, to take care of, to provide for. And so if we were to walk through these three different categories, he says, through love, the Christian community, as we love each other, okay, as we love each other, we, the Christian community, endure, we take care of each other. We don't let anybody fall behind. This is a hallmark of the Christian church as long um, as we can look back, and I mean as far back in history as we can see, the Christian community—they took care of each other. They considered themselves a family. There's this interesting thing about family, if if you'll notice it, and and something that you don't usually see until you grow up a little bit. Um, Because I didn't—I mean, I wasn't aware of this when I was in high school, right? But as I've, I've gotten into college and out of college, I've seen this. There's something about a biological tie in our society. That creates typically this almost unwavering loyalty. Where you have movies where someone comes and, and you know, I'm your brother. We've never met. Or I'm your long lost cousin or whatever it would be. And all of a sudden there's this tie there. You're, you're expected to understand that they have an obligation to that person. Even though they don't know them. Even though they never lived life with them. Because there's someone being in a family. Being in a family. Having a brother or sister that means, I'll sacrifice for you. I'll fight for you. I'll take care of you despite the circumstances. In the Gospels, Jesus over and over again is going to say, if you follow him, your new family unit is the community of believers. We've tried to, in America, I think we've elevated the immediate family a little, a little maybe extra biblically than it should be. And so here's, we're going to hit all three of these, love, sex, and money. And I'm just not sure that in America, in our society, we can truly understand what the scriptures are saying about them. I think we've we've distorted some of the messages slowly but surely over time. And so it's hard to get back into the actual text. But if you read the Gospels, Jesus is very clearly going to say this. Who are my brothers and sisters? Those who do the will of God. Those who follow me. When does he say this? When his actual brothers and sisters are trying to get near him. That's not an American, the immediate family is the highest good of all society. This is a theological Jesus coming and saying, your new family are those who believe. That's who you protect. That's who you live life with. That's who you sacrifice for. That's who you sell things to make sure they're taken care of. And so in the faith family, as long as it's existed, we pray for each other, and we meet together, and we provide for each other physically, emotionally, spiritually. And where that stops happening... You've seriously stepped away from Jesus and his teachings and possibly stepped outside of Christianity. Possibly possibly stepped outside of what we might call acceptable worship. The faith family, the people who get together to worship and live life and pursue Christ together, they take care of each other. And then he says this, and, and I love this, and we'll do some work here. Don't neglect, verse 2, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Now when I think of hospitality, I think of like... Southern sweet tea, right? Like you're sitting on the porch with a straw hat and you're just having a good time. You're rocking on the swing, right? Um, when, <laughs> there's so much more richness to this word if, if you, you go back. This is, this is a virtue um, classically. Um, the idea is, even in the way the word is formed in Greek, the idea is hospitality is opening up your home to somebody who's a stranger, which inherently involves risk, involves giving up safety, it, it involves surrendering privacy you, you open up your life your home to a stranger you're, you're hosting life with them you're sharing them they're your guests now think of back to like a nomadic time period where people would be traveling and have no place to stay and you would say sleep in my house with my children and my stuff I don't know you but come on in let's share life together Often, you'd think of hospitality with eating together. Think of Jesus' ministry. A huge part of Jesus' ministry was eating meals with other people. He would eat with people. This is his way of welcoming strangers into his life. People he didn't know. So the Christian community, I think, as we're hospitable, as we open up our homes to each other, not only endures, but we reproduce in a sense. Um, I think that... I jumped ahead here. I think that... Christians being hospitable, opening up our homes, is a primary way that we fulfill our mission to replicate, to reproduce our faith. There's a missiologist, Alan Hirsch, who says he thinks that you and I could eat our way into the kingdom than America. The, the idea is this. What if every American Christian family <coughs> said, at least once a week we're going to invite people who don't know Christ to come eat with us? <coughs> come on in. You're going to eat with us. and And our reaction is, well, Well, that's not safe. I mean, that's different. What if our kids hear these strange ideas, right? I mean, God forbid your kids see someone drinking a beer. They're going to grow up to be an alcoholic. They'll probably kill you, right? We want to separate. We want to come out from the world. And Jesus goes, why don't you invite them in for a meal? Why don't you let them sleep in the room next to your children? Why don't you let your kids see you interacting and loving and sharing your life with them? It's hard. I mean, think about this. It's hard to consistently eat a meal with somebody. And, and still have like, these huge problems with them. You eat a meal with somebody, you share stories, you laugh, right? you share stories that border on lies probably, you make memories together, you become friends. One of the things I've, I've seen in life is, is somebody who's very judgmental about somebody. So whatever the issue is for them, they typically don't know somebody with that issue or in that situation. But it's, it's when someone sits down across from them and has a meal with them that their heart softens up to them. Maybe not necessarily agreeing with them, but just saying, hey, I, I, I now know, I, I love you. Let me share with you. Let me, let me seek your good. He says, don't neglect hospitality. Open up your home to other people. I would have to wonder, maybe if we would ask questions today, um, when was the last time we invited someone into our home who was different to eat with us? When was the last time we invited someone who didn't know Christ to eat with us? I mean, I really do think this would be an experiment for a group of Christians to do. What would happen if once a week we said... Somebody who doesn't know Christ is going to come eat at our table. And we're just going to enjoy life together. And during the conversation, they're going to hear about our faith. And they're going to hear our doubts. They're going to hear about our struggles. They're going to see the way we love each other, the way we love our kids. We're going to end up probably providing for them, caring for them, loving them. I think our faith would be reproduced. He says, love the brothers. Don't neglect to show hospitality. Don't close up and and separate from the world. And he says, remember those in prison. And those who are mistreated. We could call them those who suffer. Christian love provides for those who are in a rough place in their life. The idea here is probably these are Christians who are in prison. These are Christians who are mistreated. But I think it goes far beyond that. Um, If you'll notice, if you want to do some work later, um, these three verses are are very similar to something Jesus says in Matthew 25. Um, In Matthew 25, he, he gives us a parable and then he, he talks to his disciples, and he says, on the last day, I'm going to come to you and say, hey, I was a stranger, and you didn't let me in. And I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. And I was naked, and you didn't clothe me. And I was poor, and you gave me no money. And he's anticipating that some of his disciples are going to go, well, no, 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 that never happened. We never kept you outside. And we never kept you naked. And we never kept you hungry. And we never kept you poor. And Jesus is going to go, yeah, you did. Every time a stranger walked by your house, you did. And every time... Somebody who was poor came by and you didn't help them, you did. And every time someone was still hungry after they met you, you did. He's saying, let love continue. Show hospitality. Love those in prison. Remember them. Don't forget about them. If you'll notice, he, he says for both of these, in prison, and mistreated, to identify with them. As though you were in prison with them and remembering that you're also in the body. There's something about sharing and working for the good of those who are suffering, maybe even deserved suffering that I think transforms a Christian. Um, it's, it's, I've mentioned a lot over the past couple years, um, but I've done a lot with special needs children. And I really do think that they have something to teach us about what it means to love. Um, that just spending time with them has something to teach us about what it means to love. That loving means to be okay with not understanding. When I sit across from a child or a person with Down syndrome or autism, I do not understand who they are. I don't understand what makes them tick. I don't understand what's happening in their head. I've read lots of books about it. I still don't understand it. I don't understand their reactions. I can't predict them. I can't manipulate them. And I can't extract things from them. I can't use them for my own good. There's, they, they can't provide anything for me. I simply have to be there. And I simply have to open up and, and say, Here, here's me. And, and here's all the love that I know how to show you. And here's how, let's just have a good time together. Let's just, let's just, let's just laugh together. I don't know you. I can't even communicate with you, but let's just laugh. Let's figure out a way to exist together. And I think there's something there for maybe hardened people to, to figure out how to love. What does it look like to simply turn your affections away from yourself into something, even if you don't understand it? But he says Christians, they, they they love, they remember those imprisoned, those mistreated. Now look at the reason he gives us. It's right in the middle of these four commands. Do not neglect to show hospitality, strangers, for thereby some... Have entertained angels unawares. All right, this is from Genesis 18. If you grew up in Sunday school, you remember the felt board. You talked about this story. Okay, uh, if you didn't, you can go read Genesis 18. Abraham and Sarah, two big stories in the Bible, two big characters in the Bible. They welcome three men into their house, give them some food. The three men turn out to be angels. Uh, and so this story's been told often, over and over and over again about how you never know who you're talking to, right? You never know who you're taking care of. Jesus, again, you never know who you're giving food to. Your clothing. Jesus might consider that himself. And so the idea here is again, you, you never know what's happening. You never know how God's going to work through that situation. We might say this, that love is sacramental, that it's a way that we invite Jesus into our lives. A sacrament, again, a rough definition, um, not perfect by any stretch, is something that we do that invites the grace of Jesus into our lives. And love has a sacramental feature to it, hospitality, remembering those in prison, and that somehow Jesus seems to be present in that. Somehow he seems to move in our hearts in a way that he doesn't when we're by ourselves only taking care of ourselves. Anybody who's ever been on a mission trip comes back saying, it's amazing how clearly God spoke to me and how close I felt to him when I wasn't thinking about myself for a week. There's something sacramental about love and service and caring for other people. Think to this. This is a a very famous saying of Jesus. He says this. Everyone's heard this. Where two or three are gathered, there I am. Normally we put that verse in the application of prayer, which is a secondary application, if if at all. Um, if you remember that phrase comes from Matthew 18. And Matthew 18 is about, everybody hold your breath, church discipline. Matthew 18 is about calling someone out about their sin. And it's in that context he says, if two or three are gathered, I'll be there. I'll be there. So think about this. And, and we've spoken this often. What would it take for you to call someone else out about their sin? Um, in an ideal world, sometimes you just want to be a jerk, right? And just be kind of this arrogant little punk. In an ideal Christian community, it's because you care about that person. It's because I'm living life with you, and I see that you're touching or getting close to something that's dangerous, and I just want to talk to you about it. So, can I just talk? Why are you doing that? Because in, in my understanding, that's not an acceptable form of worship. That's not the way Christians should live or talk or act or be. It, uh, discipline or confronting someone is the highest form of love that you can have for somebody. Ask any parent who's ever spanked their child. or Ask anybody. I was a camp counselor. Man, I, I understand now. You don't like seeing your kids cry. You don't like just being jerks to them. You're doing is trying to save their life. Because it would be hateful and evil to let them run into the streets. And to let them go play with whatever they might want to play that might end up harming them. So it's in that context of a group of people loving each other so much that they would talk to each other about difficult things that Jesus says, if two of you or three of you are together, I'll be there. The context is not necessarily prayer. It's community, love, living life together. And and anybody who's ever opened up their home or anybody who's ever had consistent meals with somebody or a group of people knows there's this way that Jesus works there, that he doesn't work in other places. There's this way that your heart's transformed in relationships with other people that he doesn't do elsewhere. Love has a sacramental. You'll never know if you're entertaining angels or not. So let brotherly love continue. All right, let's move on. In verse four, he hits another topic. Bam, bam, he's gonna move fast for us. He says, let marriage Be held in honor among all, and that the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Okay, he says this. We are to hold marriage and sexual intimacy in high esteem. We're to consider it valuable um, and worthy and something to be respected, something to be treated carefully. Okay, Um, now I'm not married, uh, and so a lot of the things I say about marriage is kind of like a, a football coach um, talking about how hard the hit will feel when you're on the field, but has never put on pads himself, um, right? So it's, it's convenient for me. Um, I've never been in the game. Um, I, I might one day, but, but we can say this, that the way we've done marriage in our society has not worked. It's not, on any sense. I, I, I'm not sure I would meet one person who could intelligently argue that it's worked. In the Christian church, I think the last rate I saw was up to 60% of marriages fail, split apart. I mean, that's just absurd. That, that, that communicates so clear that on some major level, we're misfiring. On some huge level. And it comes back to, I think, this pastor's exhortation to this church. Hold it in a high esteem. We treat marriage like it's a toy. Like it's something that, that is just there for us. We want to try it. If we want to have a little bit of fun. And yeah, when the next toy comes around, we'll get rid of it. The first way to honor marriage is to think correctly about it. To think rightly about it. Something that we're not, again, very good at doing. So the first thing we could say about marriage um, would be that it is a living metaphor of the gospel. In Ephesians 5, you want to see marriage theologically explained? Ephesians 5, Paul says, here's the secret to marriage. A man leaves his mother and father. An important key to any human relationship. You need to leave your mother and father. You're going to a new family unit. You leave your mother and father, you cleave to a woman, and you become one an act of sexual intimacy. The two become one, and then the man pursues, he finds, he woos, the woman returns his affection, they become one. And Paul says, I'm telling you all this, and the mystery is, this is the gospel. This is just a picture, a metaphor, this is a way of seeing what Jesus and the church are and do and partake in that Jesus finds the church, his bride, and he woos her, and he dies for her, he sacrifices for her, and the two become one. They enter into an eternal covenant where they are committed to each other. And so when, when human beings get married, not least of which in a church, with a church community around them, they're making a statement about God. They're saying, we are now taking on in our lives this metaphor. We want to be the gospel for the world around us. And show you what it looks like when Christ pursues the church, and the church obediently returns the love of Christ. The second thing we could say is, is marriage is a commitment to sanctification. And this is maybe where we failed the most, um, thinking that, that marriage is some romantic Hollywood version of love and warm feelings. Um, and then you're—I mean—you're just blindsided when you get married, and a few weeks later you realize. You don't really like the person you got married to all that much. Um, You don't have those feelings anymore. Um, I I read a quote this week by a guy named Stanley Hauerwas. He said this, Christians are called to love each other, even if you're married. Which I thought was a pretty intelligent quote, pretty, pretty right on the spot there. And he said, perhaps no other place in life does the command to love your enemy apply more than in marriage. Oftentimes you'll think that they're not on your team. And love your enemy, love your spouse, love your husband, love your wife. Marriage is a commitment to dying to yourself. Anybody in a relationship knows this. You don't have to be married. The closer you get to someone, the more you're exposed, the more your flaws are seen for what they are, the more iron rubs against iron and sharpens each other. Marriage is a commitment to sanctification, to growing closer to Christ. We have treated both of these truths lightly and treated marriage like a toy and it's blown up on us over and over and over again and I don't want to part in it anymore. I've performed one marriage. It did not end well, just months after it began um, and I've turned down maybe two or three opportunities to marry people since then. I don't want to be a part of it. I I, I very much believe, now I'm convinced from from reading and, and studying scriptures that two people getting married have the burden of proof why they should get married. They should be proving to you why they should get married, which is what premarital counseling, when it works, is supposed to do. It's like an interview. Prove to me that you can get married to this person. Prove to me that you know what marriage is. Prove to me that you're willing and ready to make the sacrifices necessary for marriage. Prove to me that the Christian community should surround you in a church before God and say, we agree. But we've said, "Eh, whatever, we'll marry you. And it blows up over and over and over and over again. We're not holding it in in honor. We're not really understanding what it is, what it means, things like that. Marriage is not something you, you choose to come out of. Marriage is not something that's easy. It's not something that you enter in quickly. And it's not something that you have a choice in once you've made that decision. How do you know that you're married to the right person? Look on your ring finger. If you have a ring there, that's who you're married to. It's not how you feel. It's not what that person does for you. The decision's been made. Now you have to work at that relationship. But people are surprised by that. Because no one sat them down and said, this is what marriage is. We've treated marriage and sexual intimacy lightly. And look at what happens. Look at the reason he tells us for doing this. Because those who flout these gifts are subject to God's judgment. For we know that God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. You do not have to be a pastor to agree with the statement. You don't have to be a Christian to believe in the statement. You don't have to be um, someone who believes in God to believe in the statement. Pick up a romance novel and read it. And read about the hurt that's created through false marriages and false sexual intimacy. Go to a therapy session. Read a magazine. Go to a blog site. I don't know. Just do something. But it's out there. All these stories... You don't have to wait till the next life to find this judgment. Those who flout these gifts, who treat them lightly, they see life break down on them. They see things start to to not work the way they're supposed to be. And it's not their fault as much as the people who married them. As much as the community that they were in who said, do you know what you're getting into? Do you know what will happen in three weeks? Do you know what we will tell you when you come to us in three weeks saying this isn't going to work out? This is treated... Hold it in honor. It's a picture of the gospel. Jesus is very clear what he thinks about divorce. It makes no one happy, but that's, that's Jesus a lot of the times. If you, if you think about it, if, if this is a metaphor of the gospel, then to split that would be blasphemy. It would be a wrong picture of who God is. Now, is that something that you can recover for? Yes, there's there's tons of grace for you to be found in the Christian community. But for you and I going forward, for those of us who aren't married, for those of us who will have people around us who are thinking about getting married, we need to do this right. This is acceptable worship to God. Now, we'll move on to the last one, maybe the hardest. Verse 5 here. Keep your life free from the love of money. Then be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we are to protect ourselves from loving money and from loving stuff. Keep yourself from the love of money and keep yourself from being discontent with what you have. Um, This is where I think we're at the the biggest disadvantage. We live in a culture of consumerism and materialism. um, And and you should be aware that at one point, at a certain point, if, if what's around you is the only thing around you, it's hard to realize that that's around you. The most confusing sentence i ever said in my life, okay? But I think it makes sense. If if consumerism and materialism is the only thing that's around you, it's hard to picture life outside of that. And you might think it's almost impossible or not even really life. And that's not a sign of reality or possibility. That's just a sign of your spiritual condition. That you can't imagine a world where you don't get more and buy more and find identity and stuff. So not to... Recently, the iPhone 4S came out. We're all aware of this. Some of us have it and are kind of trying to cover their phone right now. He's about to call the iPhone 4. No, I'm an I'm iPhone guy. I'm a, I'm a Mac guy. Um, but what happened when the iPhone 4S came out is that thousands of people who didn't need a new phone bought a new phone. An expensive phone. The world's most advanced phone. Which, can I just say, is anyone else not a little concerned that Siri has become self-aware? Okay. Watch the movies. It goes bad when machines start talking to you and having their own ideas, okay? (laughs) All I'm saying is Hollywood has played this story out for us. It doesn't end well. But regardless, we've bought this phone that that we don't need, which historically is an anomaly. It means it doesn't make sense. Historically, people wouldn't understand that. You bought something you didn't need. Why would you spend those resources? And globally, it doesn't make sense. I have lots of brothers and sisters... um, who are dear friends of mine who who don't understand that I pick what I eat every day. I mean that was a blow to the chest when I was um, overseas talking to these people who live on on much less than five dollars a day and are fine with it, have no understanding that they're without anything. And and they're like, what do you eat over in America? I'm like, well, it depends. I mean, sometimes I might want Tex Mex, sometimes I might want whatever. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa you just pick, <laughs> like. That's when you start like backing out, and I'm like, oh no, well, a lot, I mean, most of it's just there, and you just do it. And... <laughs> yeah. I mean, you woke up this morning and spent more money in the first 30 minutes of your life, of your existence today, than most people will spend all day. The clothing you put on, with the AC that was running, with the, the contacts you put in your eyes, with the gas that ran your car to get here, things like that. So, so just some perspective on the, the world that we live in, which is a world ruled by stuff. Our economy, capitalism, has tried, I think, incorrectly to turn greed into a virtue. And it's failed over and over again and on big levels. Greed is not the way that the kingdom works, wanting more, 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 and more. The scriptures are clear on this. If you look, I read this super interesting article this week. I'm a nerd. I read the Bible a lot. I know you're not there with me. Um, Like Greek words, that just gets me, I'm jazzed about it. All right? I'm just excited about it. I was reading an article that looked over the Gospels and was comparing Jesus' attitudes to certain sins. And Jesus is habitually upset and kind of a jerk to religious people and rich people. And he's over and over again gentle to sexually immoral people and thieves and what we might call terrorist, national enemies. He's so gentle to them. But if someone has money, even, even guys who come up to Jesus, you seem like good guys. He seem like they love God a lot. He's just hard to them. He's just harsh. He just sets the bar so much higher for them. He says, it's probably impossible for you to even follow me. And Jesus sets money up against God in kind of this boxing match that he does with no other sin. He says, you can't serve money or God. Pick one or the other. He does not do that with lust. He does not do that with stealing. He does not do that with anything else. He says, you need to pick one. Is it going to be stuff? Is it going to be God? We might say this, greed, wanting more, is an act of idolatry and an act of blasphemy. If you're you're reading the scriptures, to want more and more and more is to do two things. It's to one, worship something that's not God, which is stuff, for your protection. If you, if you look at what greed does for us, all greed does is create a cycle of viciousness where you and I want more stuff and then figure out that that stuff won't satisfy us and then we get more stuff and that won't satisfy us and we get more stuff and that won't satisfy us. This is also an interesting thing to do. Um, it's a well-known figure that the most wealthy societies are usually the most greedy societies. Again, like I was talking about with my friends overseas, they're not greedy at all. You and you might argue, well, they don't have anything to be greedy about. And I would argue they're way happier than we are. They're way happier. And they actually, I think, are much closer to God than most of us are. It's where money starts to increase and resources are around you that people want more and more and more. Because what happens is we get some and it doesn't do what it promised us. And so we go, well, we need more of it we get that and it doesn't do what we promised us and so we're getting more and more and more and more. And it never works. It's this vicious cycle where we end up distracting ourselves every two weeks for the rest of our lives. Human beings don't change. Kids like toys. Adults like toys. Our toys are just a little bit cooler. I'll give you that. <laughs> greed is, is idolatry. Is saying that that is God and that's not God. And greed is blasphemy. Because greed says stuff is yours to have and to get and to earn. I've said this for three years. So I'll continue saying it until I die. Or you fire me? You have not earned a cent in your entire life. You haven't. That's an American pagan idea. That you've earned anything. So when people talk about charity and they use that phrase, I earned this. I want to slap them. You didn't earn anything. Read the Bible, please. Psalm. The book of Psalms, over and over again. The cattle on a thousand hills are God's. Um, a tithe is a misleading. It's a misleading idea to say that you tithe money. Because it's all his. All of it. You're not giving him 10% of it. You're not. 100% is his. He gave it to you. You're holding it to do responsibly with it. Or to not do responsibly with it. In which case, we see in the prophets, throughout the scriptures, and in the gospels, God will come very angry. And say, I gave you that. You did not use it wisely. Bad news. You would have been better not to have had it than to have had it and not used it wisely. You didn't, you don't, we're, we're stewards. That's where we get inside of stewardship. You just have something, and you can use it a certain way or not. But it's his. And so then we want to back up and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Mike Skinner, Joe Blow. Joe Blow slept through class in college. Mike Skinner... Slept through class, but still managed to pass. Okay, so I got a degree. Joe Blow didn't get the job that I got. I got this job. Joe Blow made these choices and these choices and these choices. I earned what I have. And the scripture would want to back up a little bit more and go, hey, that's interesting. Who gave you that brain? Who gave you the energy to do that? Who didn't give you a crippling disease, maybe autism or Down syndrome, before you were born? Who gave you the motivation to get up out of bed and go do those things? Oh, I guess, yeah, that's right. It's, it's all God's. Everything is his. You have not one penny in your bank account that's not his. It is a loan. Which is why he tends to get upset when you don't do with it wisely. Because it's not just you're wasting your money, you're wasting his money that he's given to you to do wisely with. So greed is blasphemy. Greed is blasphemy. It's saying wrong things about God. Which is, this is mine and mine alone. And God's going, that's false and that's a lie. It's mine. I'm the one who reigns over everything and who owns everything. So, kingdom people, the alternative to greed is generosity. We let generosity rule. We give it away. We hold it with open hands. A litmus test for how and if greed has taken hold of you, which I can assure you it has in some form, just by virtue of us living here, a litmus test would be can you give it away today? Can you get rid of it? All of it. Goodbye. It's gone. If there's a slight moment of hesitation in you, there's a slight hesitation. there's a slight moment of hesitation in me, that's a sure sign that there's some greed there. There's a little bit of, this is mine, I need it to feel comfortable, to feel protected, to feel okay. The cure and the opposite for greed is generosity. It's interesting, that's the cure given in the scriptures. If you want to learn how to be less greedy, be less greedy. Just give it away. And the more you start giving it away, the more you start learning that it's actually all God's and that he actually does take care of us and that it actually is ours to steward responsibly. Generosity is the rule, is the law for people in the kingdom. We give money away. We use it to love and to protect and to remember and to care for. We use it for his purposes. Why? Again, because there's a God who said, I will never leave you or forsake you. It's a quote found a couple times in the scriptures, probably right here from Joshua, where Joshua goes into the promised land. Our trust is in the triune God and in him alone. Here's our reason for our, our lifestyle, our worship, and regards to money. Because God and God alone is our trust, is our source of help, is our source of comfort and provision. I'm increasingly convinced that one of the most important things you and I can do is name God. Who is God? Because I, I'm over and over again, when I use the word God, I don't think it's the same God people use when they use the word God. And it confuses me. It frustrates everybody. Like, that's not who God is. God is a three-letter word that has no meaning anymore. So the scripture is going to be very clear about naming God. God is the God, um, well, he's actually given us a name. in Exodus, Yahweh, I am, the great I am. Um, he's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's the God who took a people out of Egypt. He's the God who, according to the Testament, raised Jesus from the dead. He's the God we might call triune, the God we see in the Trinity, in Jesus the Son, and the Spirit working today in our hearts and dwelling us. And it's that God and our trust in Him that creates who we are. And so we come full circle to this this quote from Psalm 118 in verse 6. So we constantly say as God's people, the Lord is my helper. That's the truth. I will not fear. That's my response to who he is. And then let's go a step further. What can man do to me? Let me boast about it. Let me sing a song about it. Let me taunt sin and death, like Paul does in 1 Corinthians 5. What are you gonna do? You gonna kill me? Because the grave's not gonna hold me. What are you gonna do? You're gonna hurt me? That's okay. What are you gonna do? You're gonna take my stuff? It's not yours to take. What are you going to do to me? He says, this is acceptable worship. This is a life that's created by who Jesus is and what he's done. It's a life that takes very specific, very odd, different stances in life context. Context and in in ways that we live our lives. So the world lives in one way with regards to their love. They live in another way with regards to sex and to marriage. They live another way with regards to money. But God has said, there's a group of people, a remnant, who are his. Who, if you remember back to chapter 10, he's not ashamed of to call his people. He's proud of it. He goes, those are my people right there. Who live lives of worship. And who, in the very way they talk and act and spend money and have sex and love each other and eat meals together. And those very things, they proclaim both to God and to the world, He's good. He's worthy. He's ours. And then God reciprocates in the new covenant. They're mine. They're mine. I I bought them. I've saved them. I've lavished my love on them. And so we worship. Both in song, which we'll do some more in just a minute. Both in the Eucharist, which we'll do in just a couple seconds. And both in our lives, which we'll do on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for who you are, what you've done for us. We pray that you would allow us to live lives of acceptable worship, that we would, with the way we love, with the way we um, have marriage and think of marriage, with the way we spend and hold and and let go of our money, that those things would declare how good you are, who you are, what we believe about you, and the life that we've found in you, Father. that, That because of the kingdom we've been given, the unshakable kingdom, we'd respond with gratitude and worship. I pray that our lives would be lives found in the joy of who you are, what you've given us. And that we would rest and relax and sing and enjoy our days because of you. Father, help us to be a group of people that communicates to the world and to you that there is a God who reigns, there is a God who is saved, there is a God who is getting rid of all the things that don't belong in his creation. And we're anticipating and looking forward to that day. We love you. We ask that you'd be with us. It's in your son's precious name that we pray. Amen.